Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. We're your hosts, Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, and we have a special guest today. We're talking with Paul Moore, podcaster, writer, author, realtor, commercial multifamily investor, business owner, and a founder of a real estate investment firm as well. Welcome, Paul. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Bruce. Hey, you're you're welcome. Uh, We're really excited. And um, uh, just remember our, our, uh, our listeners really look at both sides of every situation. So we're really, uh, looking forward to you giving some uh, wisdom in the uh, real estate and frankly, just in business in general. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. So let's give a little bit of background. So Paul Moore, after graduating with an engineering degree and then an MBA from Ohio State, Paul entered the management development track at Ford Motor Company in Detroit. And after five years, he departed to start a staffing company with a partner. They sold it to a publicly traded firm five years later for $2.9 million. Along the way, Paul was a finalist for Ernst & Young's Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two years straight in 96 and 97, and Paul later entered the real estate sector where he flipped over 50 homes and 25 high-end waterfront lots. He also appeared on HGTV's House Hunters. He rehabbed and managed rental properties, built a number of new homes, developed a subdivision, and started two successful online real estate marketing firms. So Paul is a pretty accomplished guy. He's also built a number of other companies and made quite a few medium and high-risk investments along the way. Paul is an author of The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing, and he's also a regular author for Bigger Pockets. He's married with four children, and he lives in Central Virginia. And now we first came across Paul Moore, when we came across your other your podcast, How to Lose Money. And I believe that you interviewed Jay Massey and somebody that we followed for quite a while as well. And you're a fascinating person. You have a great story with fascinating experience and background. And we really want to be able to share your wisdom with our audience. So let's jump into this interview. Paul, can you first share with us a little bit about who you were before real estate? What's your backstory? So I, I grew up reading the National Enquirer. I've never actually said this on a podcast before, but um, I, um, I I believe in ghosts and and all that stuff. I always had this kind of a spiritual undertone, and it wasn't really super healthy to be honest. But I wanted to be a parapsychologist all through like middle school and high school, and that's like a ghostbuster. And I found out my junior year in high school, hey, they don't have any degree in that. And mm. uh, so I decided to go into engineering. Go figure. <laughs> I know and, that's that's very that's, that's that's on the opposite end of the spectrums. Well, you know, it sounded exciting to drill oil wells out west, and I'd never been out west, so I thought that sounded pretty cool. So I got a petroleum engineering degree, which was my first mistake. And um, uh, that led to um, me actually, so oil prices had dropped about to about $12 a barrel when I got out of school. And so in 1986, I got uh, an MBA and I went to Ford Motor Company. And every night I was like dreaming, like, what could I do on the side? Oil change shops, you know, those 10 minute oil change shops were getting popular at the time. So I thought, well, I, maybe I should try to start one of those. And 
didn't do that. And then I tried several other things. And eventually, uh, I was able with a partner to start an HR outsourcing firm in Detroit. And I left Ford Motor Company, did that, uh, was um, with that company, did that company for about five years till we sold it. And, you know, retiring, semi-retiring, I guess you could say in your mid-30s sounds like a dream come true. It was more of a nightmare. I moved Mm. to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Central Virginia with my two young kids, and we started a nonprofit organization to do this outreach to uh, international students studying in the U.S., and that was fun, but, you know, it was like only a few hours a week, and I got bored really quick, so we started, my friend and I heard you could buy houses for pennies or whatever on the dollar at the courthouse steps, so we went to a uh, courthouse steps auction, bought a house, flipped it in three weeks for a twenty dollars or $25,000 profit, and we thought, this is easy, and <laughs> we thought, we'll just do this every couple of weeks, and that obviously you know, didn't pan out that way, but that was the beginning of my real estate career. Wow. And what year was that? That was in 2000. Okay. Okay. So you've definitely had um, some ups and downs in the market along the way with that as well. So what did you, what made you stick in real estate? So um, I was actually, we were flipping houses and we did dozens of houses. And I thought, well, if this is profitable, building would be much better. So we started buying lots and building modular homes. And then I built a stick built home. And Bruce and Rachel, I would propose to you that somebody who doesn't know how to tighten their own doorknob uh, should not build a house. Okay. (laughs) That's just kind of what I'm thinking. And uh, so um, I had, uh, I got a uh, general contractor in and they found out that they could take advantage of me pretty quickly. And Uh, uh, so instead of making about 80 or a hundred thousand dollar profit on the house, I lost 40,000. But at that same time, I got this crazy call one day. I'm in my basement. And this guy calls and he said, hey, I'm Dave Stevens and I'm the senior vice president of Freddie Mac and I'm trying to buy a house at Smith Mountain Lake and I've called seven realtors and none of them have returned my call. I see that you're a builder, but on your website, but I see you also have a realtor license, which I had recently. And he said, would you help me find a home? And I said, well, well, sure. And I found out that in a couple of weeks I made like $16,000 in commission. And I just had spent eight months to lose 40000 tearing my hair out, building a house. And I thought, well, I'm just, I'm just going to switch and do this. So I pivoted and started this website called smithmountainhomes.com. And um, we ended up taking advantage of Google AdWords when it was a, in its infancy. Uh, made a lot of money doing that. Flipped dozens of high-end waterfront lots that we were able to buy cheap and, and sell for a profit. Um, and I still have that website today. Along the way, I wrote a book about Smith Mountain Lake real estate, and that has been one of the smartest things I ever did because, you know, people think, hey, if I'm going to buy real estate in a certain area, I might as well go to the person who wrote a book on it. So uh, Mm -hmm. we still sell that book. It's in its third edition nine years later and um, 10 years later now. And uh, we, um, that's been, that's what kept me in real estate. But after that, I ended up doing all kinds of other things, including um, uh, I actually built a high-end um, man camp, or you could say a multifamily slash hotel in North Dakota. Um, okay. I helped with a Hyatt hotel, did some other things. And that's where I've been in real estate since that 
time that I got into, uh, uh, tried to do building back in 2004. Wow. Wow. So would you say that you kind of fell into the niche with the Smith Mountain Homes or did you specifically choose to focus on a niche? Well, I had a little bit more money than sense at the time. And this guy taught me into building a very nice website for 2004, at least. And um, so that uh, having that nice website is what drew the Freddie Mac guy. And so Mm. that is how I fell into it for sure. You know, I, your website, I visited your website for um, Smith mountain and it's very, very, very nice today. So you've obviously made some continual renovations of that. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And the way we work, by the way, is we generate leads. And now I, I basically sell those leads to seven other realtors who take the leads and go try to close sales. And so that's how that's how I work. I don't work as a realtor anymore to speak of. Nice. Okay. So uh, this is kind of a side question then. So it sounds like you mastered the marketing side of business and were able to then leverage that skill set more than even maybe the real estate itself. How would you How would you answer that? Yeah, absolutely. I sometime in my 40s, I realized that all along I should have just been in marketing. And that's what I really love. That's what I'm passionate about. So I actually took a couple of years off when the market crashed. I was actually two and a half million dollars in debt Um, after being having almost two million in the bank in 97. I was two and a half million dollars in debt in 07. Wow. Amazing story how I ended up being debt free. And we can chat about that later if you want. But I um, took a couple of years off. I, I left the real estate website running, which is where I made my base income, but I actually studied direct response marketing and copywriting. And that's what I really love. It's the one skill I probably have, um, which, you know, that I could do for somebody else. And that would be uh, writing and copywriting. So that's what I really love. You hit it right on the head, Rachel. That's right. Wow. That's just, that's fascinating. So I'm seeing the real estate side, but if you had to say what was the key to your success throughout all of these transitions, I mean, I'm hearing the marketing was really something that rose to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I got to tell this quick story. This this is, I heard this on another podcast and it changed my life. Uh, A couple of years ago, I was trying to figure out how are we going to get investors for Wellings Capital, which is what I do now. It's a multifamily and we also raise money for self storage and, I didn't have any idea. I only knew a handful of people. My potential investor list was literally, I could count on two hands and I didn't know if any of them would invest. Um, and so I heard this podcast and I'm, and the, and the question was posed and it's kind of a silly analogy, but it's still fun. Uh, if you were way up North and you had to, and you love salmon and you wanted to get salmon to survive, you could either be a spear fisherman in a dark lake which means you could learn to, you know, craft these spears. You could learn to throw the spear. You could hope that a fish swam by and hope that they didn't turn, take a left or right turn right when you threw the spear and you'd get some fish and you might survive. But the other option, and this is where it gets silly, is you can actually be a grizzly bear with a big wide open mouth and stand in the waterfall and let salmon jump into your mouth. Huh. And the analogy means this, if you can do great job marketing and great job setting up a platform like you two are doing, by the way, uh, you you will draw people to where they'll come to you and they'll ask you if they can invest with you. And so that's actually what's happened. Um, We, I took that to heart in September, uh, basically about two years ago. 
And we've built a platform that is shocking to me every week. I think, I can't believe all the people that are approaching us asking to invest. And it really has been a great thing. That is awesome. That's awesome. And I love how you shared that. I mean, you could call it inbound marketing or content marketing, but you're putting something out there to attract instead of um, hunting. So right. that's fascinating and definitely something that I'm seeing a trend in successful business owners and successful marketers. So tell us a little bit more about Wellings Capital. How how do you work through Wellings Capital? Who are you serving and what are you providing to them? So Wellings Capital came about after um, we had this fantastic run in North Dakota with this quasi multifamily. We sold that in 2013. And then I lost some money on two or three other deals fairly quickly around that time. I do have a podcast called How to Lose Money, right? And uh, <laughs> Yes, you do. And we're going to ask you about that in a minute too. Yeah. But um, anyway, um, I, I decided I really wanted to get into multifamily and the demographic trends that you uh, basically, I, I turned 50. And I was looking for something I could look out decades ahead and see that was had a stability, predictability, safety, something I could teach my kids if they wanted to learn it. And I found that in multifamily because the government had tweaked and messed around with the, the laws on who could get a mortgage. And when they did that, they allowed anybody who could basically fog a mirror to get a mortgage in 1995 or so. And home ownership skyrocketed for the next decade. And then, of course, we all know in 2005 and beyond, it plummeted and it went back to its normative rate of about 63%. But each drop from 69.2 to 63%, every 1% represented a million new renters. And it, But it also came at a time when there was not a lot of new multifamily or anything being built, right, during the recession. Mm -hmm. And so there became the supply and demand inequity. And what is underlying that now is number one, the smallest group of renters are baby boomers, but it's the fastest growing. And statistics say when baby boomers go from home ownership to renting, they'll never go back to ownership again. The second wow. group is millennials, and that's 80 million strong. And it's the largest group of renters, of course. And millennials have record student debt. And they often don't see that it makes sense for them to get tied down to a 30-year contract on a seemingly overpriced home with, that denies them the flexibility to move across town or across the country next year for a new job, new friends, new excitement, new adventure. And then the third group is immigrants. And immigrants, by and large, rent more and rent longer than people who uh, have their origins in the U.S. And so these three groups, you can look ahead for decades and see that it looks like the renter market's going to be very, very strong for a very long time. But at the same time, I didn't. I decided I didn't want to be a developer anymore. I wanted to be somebody who just took on someone else's development and took a much lower risk, was willing to live with a much lower return. And so Wellings Capital was born by three of us who were all in their 50s, all were tired of losing money, all serial entrepreneurs. And we decided we're going to do something safe, stable. We're going to take advantage of these trends I just elaborated on. And um, so Wellings Capital, our goal was to buy, hold, and allow our investors to profit from multifamily investing. And I'm going to be real honest with you. We got in at perhaps one of the worst times ever because oh, wow. interest in multifamily has been at an all-time high. And that means prices are at an all-time high. And we're, I'm talking, of course, June of 2018. Um, but 
we uh, are having a very, very hard time finding assets that make sense. We made a commitment to never knowingly overpay for something. So we are, we've looked at about 200 apartment complexes this year, and we haven't bought any yet. Uh, the last one we bought was in December of, um, you know, about six months ago, December of 2017. But we're still actively looking, but we're also giving our investors opportunities to look at other asset classes, including self-storage. So that's where we're at. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. So I feel like there's so much packed into that. So many questions I want to ask you. So um, did the did the self-storage come out of not having as much opportunity in the multifamily space? Or was there a different reason that the storage came out? You know, for the last several years, I, I get calls from people saying, hey, I want to tell you about mobile homes or self-storage or office or retail or industrial. And I would always say, you know, thanks. I, I'm just really focused. I made a commitment. I'm only going to be focused on multifamily. But a guy called me in February and said, you know, I've been committed to multifamily for years. And I just wonder if you would take a half an hour to look at self-storage. So I did. And I started, like you said, as uh, with the frustration that our investors had nothing to invest in at Wellings Capital. Mm. But later, I realized that the demographics and the uh, fundamentals for self-storage were similar to apartments. And I actually realized, hey, I don't want to go out and learn this whole new asset class. But, you know, Warren Buffett, he doesn't actually start companies. He doesn't run companies himself so much. He mainly finds great teams with a great product, great company, and then he gives them a lot of funding to help them grow. And I thought, what if I could do that? And so I started interviewing companies in the self-storage space. I made three trips to, um, actually four trips, to meet with these folks on their home turf. And I actually found a couple I loved who are doing a great job. And so there's all kinds of fundamentals underlying that we could discuss if you want to, but I'll just say in summary, that's how it came about. Well, what I'm interested in, Paul, is um, a little bit more about your real estate because uh, I did I did look at it, and it's for accredited investors, and it looks like you have a four to seven year um, hold period. Are you then uh, selling those yourself? Or are you um, to other uh, investors? Are you selling those to uh, other REITs? Are you selling those to you know, a pension system? How, what's your exit strategy on those? Well, that's a great question. My ideal exit strategy, I, mean, I don't want to say like Buffett, you know, um, by the way, I'm trying to write a book on Warren Buffett's principles for real estate investors. And so I'm nice. studying him now. It's kind of fun. And, um, I, you know, he says his ideal hold time is forever. Well, I'm not going to say that, but I will say that the four to seven years is, in my mind, the best strategy at that point is to refinance, give investors back all their principal and then quite a bit of profit as well, and then allow investors to stay in at the same ownership percentage and then just plow forward and allow investors to reinvest that money, but for us to continue to give them checks uh, indefinitely, in, including us. And so that would be my favorite exit strategy. If we were going to sell, uh, the best buyer for self-storage, at least with the company we're co-investing with, would be to roll up a large, uh, several of these very large self-storage facilities. I'm talking 100,000 square feet, for example, uh, $25, 35000000 million facilities. Roll those up and sell those to a REIT, like you said. And um, 
how, how do you how do you market your um, your multifamily Wellings Capital? Do you do it directly? Do you do it through a wholesaler, um, broker dealer? I mean, how how do you do it? You know, I do it like a grizzly bear at the okay. waterfall. Um, that's the only way we have right now. Does that have to do with your book? <laughs> um, yeah. So writing the book, having a podcast, being a guest on your podcast and others, mm-hmm. writing for Bigger Pockets, doing video, and then uh, Bigger Pockets Live. Uh, Bigger Pockets, by the way, is the largest real estate investor uh, site for uh, one point, just a little over one million investors now are, are on that site. But those are the five things I do. And then I occasionally speak live uh, for IMN and other events. But um, at any rate, those are the five or six things that I do. And be- That's excellent. And Rachel, before we move into the next the next part of the uh, outline, uh, Paul, we really try to help people, business owners, build the life that they love going forward. Um becoming more of an entrepreneurial spirit rather than just a business owner. And we often define that as a business owner has just bought themselves a job and they're often the lowest paid person at that job and they become stagnant and they, and you're certainly not in that class. You're somebody that keep constantly reinvents themselves, so on and so forth. I find that interesting because, you know, you mentioned earlier that you were in your thirties and you thought, Oh, I'm just, I made this money. I'm going to retire. And then you became board and you decided that you were going to move forward, but you decided to move forward, I believe, on the terms that you wanted to move forward in. So can you expound on that concept of uh, business owners, real estate investors actually moving forward on the terms that they want to move um, forward on? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the uh, book that a lot of people talk about have for decades is the E-Myth or the various you know books that sprung out of that but the e myth tells us that you know if you're tied to the job you know you, that you might be a great plumber i have a plumber in my house today so i'm thinking about it uh, you might be a great plumber but you may not be a great plumbing company you know words, you may not be a great business owner for a plumbing company and a lot of people who love a passionate a thing that they do whether it's art or uh, whether it's business or whatever they find themselves owning a company and they find themselves tied down to, you know, doing payroll, taxes, benefits, hiring, firing, paperwork. I mean, doctors, my, one of my business partners is a doctor and he said it's just become a nightmare of paperwork mm-hmm. and a, a morass of regulations they have to follow. So um, I am looking for businesses, you know, and I would recommend that people look for businesses that they love and uh, to do something that they love, but to actually uh, outsource as much as they can to learn to delegate as fast and as much as possible and allow them to stay really focused on their core competency. You know, there's a book that everybody talks about now. It's called The One Thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Gary Keller and Jay yep. Papazon. And I'm trying my highest endeavor right now in my life is to learn to live by the principles of that book. And business owners really need to do that or they're going to get burnout, miserable. I used to say, hey, being an entrepreneur is fun and we get the choice to work any 80 hours a week we choose. <laughs> right. And I don't want to live that way anymore. I'm in my mid-50s. I've got four kids that have seen a workaholic dad for too long. And so I'm trying to get out of that track. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. That is just a, a powerful story as as you're talking about just the transitions that you've made to be in control of your financial destiny, to be in a position. I mean, right now, if you 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 basically came out of retirement from semi-retirement, you said in your mid-30s. What is what's driving you now? I mean, why are you continuing to look to grow and build? So Simon Sinek has a book called Start With Why. Mm-hmm. And he talks about having a big why and why we need to have something driving us after the money, you know, there, after there's enough money. And my big, I don't know how much you all have heard. And I, and I know if I said this five years ago, it might have been a surprise, but we've all heard about human trafficking now. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, I want to believe that if I was alive in the 1850s or 60s, that I would have been an abolitionist and fighting slavery and I would have been standing up for, you know, civil rights. Or if I was an adult 100 years later, that I would have been standing up for civil rights in the 1960s. There is a plague going on worldwide right now. There's about 36 million people estimated to be uh, slaves around the world. I mean, listen to this. If you took the record profits, the record profits of Apple, Nike, General Motors, and Starbucks, combine those, double that number, human trafficking every year has higher revenues than that number. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's serious. And so I'm thinking, wait, this isn't, this isn't getting the, um, the, the press that other things uh, would have gotten, you know, like slavery and things like that. But it is a serious, serious situation happening right in our world right now. So my goal is to actually use my profits. Hold on just a second. That was hilarious. You know, I don't know if you're going to edit that out, but we can. Um, it's okay. I said, I said, guys, this is serious. And my Siri went uh-huh. off in the background on my iPhone. I, I don't know if you could hear it. I heard Siri. Yes, I was wondering why, but that's hilarious. And then it started playing a bluegrass song. My One of the plagues, I'm, I, did I say plague? One of the uh, yeah, benefits <clears throat> of moving to the Blue Ridge Mountains is my kids, one of my kids got really involved in bluegrass music. And nice. somehow our iTunes account has <clears throat> bluegrass songs on it. And so that's the banjo you heard right there. That's and, awesome. Um, Anyway, I think you should leave it in, but that's no, we can leave that in. That's awesome. But, uh, I love those. <laughs> anyway, seriously. Um, so I decided, hey, I want to use my this platform I'm building. I want to use the money we're making. I want to use the relationships I'm building to garner support to fight human trafficking and to rescue its victims. So I took three, two or three trips out to Kansas City to visit a group called Exodus Cry and then another group who are doing amazing work to try to in, in this field. And so, um, and I'm actually part, so Wellings Capital would, you know, we're planning to donate a lot and I'm already donating money out of my, you know, myself, we're planning to donate a lot towards fighting human trafficking and rescuing victims. But I'm also part of a group called Freedom Place. Now Freedom Place is a new organization. We plan to build a billion dollar office tower in Dallas. And we plan to give all of the profits, all the internal profits, not obviously not the investors and architects and construction folks, but all of our internal profits to fight human trafficking. And that's going to be, we estimate about 100 to $125 million. And that's a prototype for what we want to do again and again. 
Oh, wow. That's fascinating. It's just, it's really cool to see that your vision is so, so, so much bigger than just you and your family and your life. And you're really looking to make a huge worldwide impact and impact people's lives for the positive in just a a powerful way. And I really appreciate you sharing that because it does come back to our why. And when you have that big of a driving motivation, it's no wonder why you're being successful in the things that you're putting your hand to. It's just, it's, it's powerful and beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, thanks, Rachel. I appreciate it. Yeah, that is that is awesome. That is very awesome, Paul. Um, you know, one of the, one of our goals um, uh, also on this particular podcast is just overall financial education, and we're trying to get people to realize that just the typical financial education that they get at work is just that. It's just typical, and there's all kinds of other things out there. You obviously already know about that. So can one of the things we espouse to is to, is to tell people that you know a, a, the normal investor can get into real estate with some turnkey operations. They don't have to be a house flipper. They don't have to go to the, to the courthouse steps like you you said, but they can get into it. And we believe that helps them take control of their own financial life in a way outside of the stock market. We're not saying that they can't do that, but there's other things that they can control. So can you tell us a little bit about your book, The Perfect Investment? Um, and, you know, the, the title is Creating Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. So that you're obviously, I mean, we've already talked about this, you're big into this real estate investing. And how can that uh, be an alternative to people from typical financial planning? Well, you know, it, it has been said for years that, you know, the rich get richer and then a lot of people get rich through commercial real estate investing. And they are not really welcoming all of us to their party because it takes a lot of resources mm-hmm. and a lot of history to be able to invest in large scale commercial real estate investing. For example, if I want to buy a $10 million apartment building, we bought a $9 million one in um, December, like I said, well, you would need, let's say, uh, $6 million in debt. Well, you would need about $6 million in net worth to get that debt. You would also need the liquidity uh, of, let's say, one-year interest, uh, interest in principal payments on the loan uh, available in case something goes wrong and you've got to make those payments. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae uh, have virtually no defaults in the multifamily arena for years. And that's one of the reasons they are so careful. Um, So the lender has to vet you very carefully. You've got these high bars to jump. The broker, even if you had cash, the broker wants to vet you very carefully because they are not going to waste time on somebody who doesn't put gas in their BMW or food on their kid's table. And they're going to sell their apartments to people they know, like, and trust. And if that's not you, if you don't have a history with them, they might not even present the offer to the seller, even if it's the high offer. And they have the right to do that because they know how many deals go bad. And it's a mini disaster if a deal goes bad midstream. So there are all these hurdles to get in. Well, syndicators, which is a company like Wellings Capital and others, allow a lot of investors at the, let's say, 50 or 100 or $200,000 level to pool together uh, their funds and then go in with the syndicator and get the direct advantages of direct ownership in apartments or self-storage or mobile home parks, et cetera. And that is 
what has that 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 syndication process is what gives access to the average investor, uh, accredited investor at least, uh, access to these really monumental returns and incredible tax advantages of commercial real estate. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you're filling a need of helping somebody to get into this space who would not otherwise qualify, and you're giving them the tools, the resources, and the the team to be able to really do that. Right. That's that's fascinating. So let's um, move now towards your podcast. So I love your podcast. I've followed it for a while. It's called How to Lose Money. And you're typically sharing these stories of success. And I know one of your premises is really that we often um, don't hear the stories of failure from the people around us. We all want the success, but we don't hear about the failure that gave the lessons that you find is really predictable. Um, you share kind of these indicators and markers with flags as you go through a story. Can you share a little bit about why you have the podcast, what you're hoping to um, present, and, and really kind of your vision for the How to Lose Money podcast? Absolutely. So, yeah, we did want to start a podcast, and I thought it would be great if people would just be honest. For years, I've just gotten frustrated at conferences, and and, and this is in my personal life as well as business, that you know these people who have these great successes just talk about that. And Sometimes people in the audience go away discouraged. Like, well, I could never do that. Uh, all they did is succeed. All they mm-hmm. have is a perfect family. All they have is a perfect business. And so I thought, and I actually would write comments in at these conferences year in and year out at this one conference I went to and say, hey, can you share your, share your failure stories? One time somebody asked somebody from the, from the front, hey, can you share a failure story? And the guy froze like a deer in the headlines. He had nothing to say. I knew that wasn't true. Uh We all know it's not true. So every one of us knows that we fail regularly. And so we decided to put put together a podcast. And I was trying to think of a name for it. And I was talking to this uh, brilliant marketing guy named Josh Thomas. And he said, hey, so why don't you call it? I think he said how to lose money. And so I hung up from that call. And I was for days, I was pondering, yeah, yeah, how to lose all your money, how to lose (laughs) all the money, how to lose the money. What did he say again? And so I finally called him back and I said, what did you say? And he said, how to lose money. And I, and he said, I'll be your co-host. And so that's how we came together. We had never met. And, um, we, uh, came together to do this. We've done about 120 episodes now. So it's been really fun. And we have talked to successful people, uh, about the failures, the mistakes, the things that have happened to them that were outside their control that caused them to lose time money, a business, or relationships. But it typically boils down to money on the show. Mm, I love that. And I love the transparency, the honesty, and just the authenticity. Because honestly, the the journey to the top is uh, fraught with ups and downs. And it's definitely not a straight shot. And no one has gotten there straight. So I, I really love that you share that. Now, can we talk, how would you crystallize maybe your most important lesson that you've learned in business, and I know you've talked about several of them already as we've as we've gone through. Um, you can bring out whatever you want. Maybe maybe it has to go with becoming debt free from that two point five million in debt. Maybe it's something else. But where would you say your most important lesson of failure has been along your journey? I'm tempted to ask how much time I have, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I'll give you like three or four very quickly. Number one. Uh, there's a difference. Uh, risk, high risk does not always lead to high return. Mm-hmm. We kind of think yeah, low risk, low return. 
which is generally true, or high risk, high return. Well, that's not really true. We'd like to think that because as entrepreneurs, we're optimists by nature. The truth is high risk leads to the potential of higher return, but it also leads, I'd say more than equally, um, to the potential of higher loss. Oh, absolutely. We agree 100% with that. Yeah. So I spent years telling people that I was investing because I'm an investor. And I realized I wasn't investing at all. I was gambling. Mm. I was speculating. And I realized... Um, after studying Warren Buffett and other things, I realized, wait a minute, there's a difference between investing and speculating. Uh, Paul Samuelson, the first Nobel Prize winner in economics from the U.S., said, investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. (laughs) I saw that on your website. Yeah, yeah. So, Gambling, investing is this. Investing, in my mind, is when your principal is safe, generally, when your principal is safe and you have a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you have a chance to make a return. And I confused the two for years. And when I put, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of my and my friends' money down an oil well hole, an oil well in North Dakota, I was speculating, thinking Mm -hmm. that, oh, no, no, that was just an investment. Well, when we lost all that money, it turned into clearly a gamble. Uh, When we built a wireless internet company uh, with unproven technology, that was gambling, and we lost money on that. And so uh, made a lot of investments that were gambling that I, I mean, a lot of gambles, I should say, that I thought were investments. So that was one big lesson. Um, A second is the importance of giving wherever you're at. If you're making a very small amount of money, start giving because I believe there's a universal law that you will get back in proportion to what you give. And I've found that in life. When we were two and a half million dollars in debt, and it was around December of 2017, I called my family together and I talked to a few friends and I said, hey, Our backs were against the wall. Now, thankfully, all that two and a half million dollars in debt was with real estate attached to it. But I didn't know that we were going into the worst. I mean, I had a lot of signs, but I didn't know how bad the recession was about to be the next two years. Did you mean 2007? Yeah, you said 17, so you were confused there. Um, Thank you, Rachel. Um, Yes, I meant 2007. So I called my family together and I said, Hey, I said, we're, our backs are against the wall and things are looking bad on every front. So I, I got an idea. Why don't we give our way out of debt? And mm. because I thought, so, I mean, so one of my heroes is George Mueller. George Mueller's a guy who lived almost all the way through the 1800s and he built orphanages that eventually housed 10,000 orphans in total in Bristol, England over the years. And he never Um, he never went into debt. So that was one thing I was very different on. But he also never actually, he was very, very generous. So anytime he got any money, he was always giving first. He was always making a priority to give. And he actually uh, raised, uh, I think it was $180 million uh, in US dollars in today's dollars to uh, house these orphans over the years. I imagine it was maybe more than that. And he did it all without ever telling one single person, including his own staff, that they had any needs at all. And it just it just came in. 
And so I thought, what would George Mueller do if he was stuck in my shoes? And I thought, well, he wouldn't be in debt, but if he was, he would give his way out. And so I said to my family, hey, let's let's play a game. <clears throat> I had little kids. Um, let's play a game and act like we're making half a million dollars a year. And let's give based on that. And let's see what happens. Wow. So <laughs> we started giving a set weekly amount, which was really painful, January 1st, 2008. And, um, you know, lo and behold, the end of January, four weeks later, I was in a Subway restaurant and I met a real estate developer there that I knew a little. And I told him my plight and I told him about a five acre piece of very valuable waterfront land that was only one lot. And that I had planned on subdividing into five, but I couldn't because the law prohibited. And he said, huh, yeah, well, you know, there's this other law that says this. Have you thought about that? And a light bulb went off and I got very excited. I went back to my surveyor who knew the law really well. We sat down before the county planning and zoning people uh, two days later and we pitched this crazy idea to take the law that prevented subdividing and actually use it to subdivide the land and to see what they'd say. And um, wow, that's fascinating. Me, it was unreal. And it was surreal. And the lady looked at me over her glasses and she said, I've been working here for decades and no one has ever proposed something so outlandish. But she said, you're right that you found a loophole in the law that no one has ever found. And I'll grant your request. Wow. Oh, my goodness. 13 months later, we were completely debt free. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That is an, an amazing story. I mean, literally, I have chills thinking about it. I'm like, the completely most counterintuitive thing that you could possibly have done to give your way out and then being in this conversation that, I mean, is nothing short of being providential is then you're, you're able to do something fascinating. I think you said in 13 months. Yeah, that's right. 13 months later. So by, wow. I think it was March or April of 2009, uh, we were completely debt free and it was really miraculous. And it's a great story. My kids, I hope are going to remember all their lives. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. You said you were going to give us a couple of your stories. Was that the two that you wanted to share or was there something else? I wanted to make sure that I allowed you as much time as you wanted on that. Well, I've never verbal, I've never verbalized this before. And so maybe you're going to want to edit this out. So let me see if I can say this. One of the great truths, two of the great truths I've learned in the How to Lose Money podcast are these two. Number one, you need to know when to cut. Uh, you need to know when to cut it off quit and quit quickly when you know that things are gone wrong when you have seen you know the black flag as we talk about in how to lose money mm -hmm. you know it's time to quit pack up move on before you sink hundreds of thousands or more of your money years of your life and lose a lot more you need to know when to quit now here's the other main truth i've learned through how to lose money and jay massey actually taught me this he said Hey, if you've made a lot of mistakes, if you've tripped, stumbled, lost money early on, get back up and jump back in. You've already paid your tuition, so you might as well go back and get the benefit right. of that tuition you paid. It's like it's. I know you have an awesome. MBA, but it, it's it's like a real life MBA. Yeah, but here's the problem. Bruce, Rachel, those two truths are opposite. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was gonna. I was wondering how you're gonna reconcile that. So, how do you how do you reconcile the cut bait and run quickly versus you paid your tuition, so jump back in? 
I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. All I can say is this. I sometimes I'm asked, you know, what's a morning routine for you look like? What do you do every day that you try to, you know, center yourself? And I try to spend some time every morning praying and meditating. And really, I'm a really, really fast paced person right till bedtime. But I try to spend the first hour, hour and a half just really relaxing, very, very chill. And I think that is the time when I have to ask, which is it right now? Here's these two truths held in tension. Is it this right now or is it that right now? And hopefully I get those answers in those morning meditation times and chill times. And that's all I can say. Other than that, I don't know that there is there's certainly not one right answer that fits all. No, I just I really like how you shared that. And uh, Stephen Palmer has a, a weekly email that comes out and it's about inspiration on a daily or on a weekly basis. And he was just talking about something very similar. And it was interesting. He brought Seth Godin to the forefront of the book called The Dip. And it talks about the same thing. How do you how do you decide? And I think one of the key things is not looking outside of ourselves for somebody else to answer that question, but really getting clear on what our own intention is and being able to answer the question for ourselves, And I think you really just uh, solidified that as you shared your story. Right. You know, there's so much we have quantum physics is proving, you know, we have access to so, so much um, information and abilities, you know, that we have by design. And um, we, there, there's, we know in our heart of hearts, a lot of times if we're about to get scammed, but sometimes mm-hmm. we do it anyway. We think, well, the, the, the payoff is so big. I'm going to go ahead and go for this. What can go wrong? And that's another lesson for me that I've learned. And that is being very careful not to get scammed and following your gut instincts. Oh, I love it. Well, this has been just rich with your life lessons and huge nuggets and takeaways from this podcast. So Paul, as, as we're closing here, how can people reach out to you? I mean, you have the books that they could access if they wanted to move to Smith Mountain Lake. That's available as well if they're interested in um, multifamily investing or if they're just wanting to listen to the podcast. Share a little bit more how they can connect with you. Absolutely. So like I said, like you said, I, I write a lot on bigger pockets. You can find stuff there. You can find us at our website, which is wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S capital.com or you can find us on itunes or google play at how to lose or uh, at how to lose money.com for our how to lose money podcast and you know um it feels funny to say this to people i don't know so well but we'd love to have you both on the podcast as well and uh share your stories if you have any failures maybe you don't (laughs) we definitely do (laughs) yeah i can i can vouch for that one so great Yes, that's excellent. And we actually will have the opportunity in about two weeks as well to have Josh Thomas on the podcast as well. So we wanted to be able to split that up and really focus on your story. And then I know he's working with you on the um, How to Lose Money podcast. You mentioned he's a big, brilliant marketing guy. And so it's going to be really fascinating to hear his backstory as well. That'd be great. Excellent. Well, as we close, if you as our listener would like to create a comprehensive strategy to keep in control more of the money that you already make, you can email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com to request your free financial picture conversation. And that will just help you maximize your wealth today and in the future by discovering money that's flowing out of your control 
and help you strategize to get more of your money flowing back into your control so you can retain and utilize that, have more to pass on to future generations and more to utilize in your lifestyle today. So thank you for this podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you, our listeners at themoneyadvantage.com. And special thanks to our guest, Paul Moore, for being on the show today. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Paul. Oh, thank you. It's been a real honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Excellent. Well, in closing, I want to just share success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. To learn how high-performing entrepreneurs 10x or more returns on liquid capital without giving up quick access to cash, go to themoneyadvantage.com forward slash liquid dash capital to get The Unfair Advantage, your 20-minute easy-to-read guide on maximizing your savings. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.